Welcome to the Excel Still More podcast. I am your host, Chris Emerson. I'm here to encourage you in your walk with God. Thank you for joining in. Today's podcast is sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John Cunningham is a friend of mine and a brother in Christ, and he can help you with financial decisions and future planning. He's been a big help to me and my family, and I commend him to you. You can reach him at 205 213-1720. I am so thankful you're here, so let's get started. Hey, thanks for joining in again. I'm really glad you're here. So I'm committed to something over the next three weeks, and I really hope I can convince you to be on board with me. And really, I guess it kind of got kicked off last week. I really enjoyed going into that Bible story in Genesis 11, looking at the things that God has revealed, and drawing out applications that have daily value. And one of my personal commitments to ESM 2023 is doing more of that. So around the same time I was recording that episode last week, I was doing a read through the Gospel of Mark. We have this daily Bible read thing going we've been doing for a few years. If you happen to be on Facebook, It is the Excel Still More, a chapter a day group, where we're just basically embracing this idea that we'd like to read one New Testament chapter a day until Jesus comes back. There are comments and discussion just about every day, and we also do a little bit of Old Testament reading. But anyway, long story long, I've been enamored once again with Mark's gospel. He's so incredibly to the point, and he also uses this tremendous rhetorical device of comparisons to make applications crystal clear. So recently, I've noticed several of those comparisons in the opening chapters of that letter. And what I would like to do is share those with you over the next three weeks. Today, we'll focus in on Mark chapter 2, a comparison between the Pharisees and Jesus. They ask him four questions that says a whole lot about them, and he asks them one in early chapter 3, which pretty much ends that conversation. I feel like there's so much talk today about Phariseeism among God's people, whether it's being judgmental or legalistic or traditionalists in a way that is negatively affecting others. And while I might openly admit some of that is true, we have to find a way biblically to really put some tangible direction on that. Like, what exactly do you mean by that? If I am like that, how do I change? And effectively, Mark 2 in today's episode is simply this— Comparing the Pharisees and Jesus, how do I become less like them and more like him? By the way, if you're wondering why it's titled Pharisees and Jesus instead of Jesus and Pharisees, I figured they'd want their name first, so I gave that to them. And because we usually end episodes by restating the title, I just wanted to end today with the name Jesus. If everything goes as planned, next Monday, I'll talk to you about Mark chapter 7, which zones in more on the comparison between Pharisees and disciples, and the mission will be quite simple and similar. How do we be less like those law-dog system-protecting Pharisees and more like the disciples that Jesus drew out of the world? And then I'd like to come back one more time and talk about in Mark 9 the comparison between Jesus and his disciples. His disciples had good hearts, but there was a pretty big gap between them and him. And while I know exactly what that feels like, that chapter can help me slowly but surely grow past where they were and establish more closeness and maturity with the Lord. 
So that's the plan. And full disclosure, I am preaching all of this stuff, including the Tower of Babel and all three of these at Lindale around this same time. So if you're more interested in 40 minutes than 20 minutes, or I guess more valuably, a lot more scriptural work, then you can go to the YouTube channel for Lindale Church of Christ and you can check it out there. Okay, let's jump into Mark chapter 2 and four instances between the Pharisees who had showed up to monitor and pass judgment on Jesus and the Son of God himself. The first story we know really well. Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, and there's this paralytic who can't get to him, and they cut the hole out of the roof and lower him down, and Jesus saw his faith and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. The text says some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Of course, you know the rest of that story. Jesus perceived what was in their hearts. He goes on to heal the man to prove that he does, in fact, have the authority as the Son of God to forgive sins. But I have to say here, of the four questions I'm going to show you from this chapter, this one is dripping with irony like none of the rest. Because I actually think the Pharisees are asking a really good question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But the answer to their question has a couple of direct implications upon them. The first answer is, only God can, and Jesus is God. I want to make sure you hear me clearly. Jesus forgives sins. He has the power to do it, and if he forgives your sins, they are forgiven. There is no gatekeeper, no organization, no group, no one who grants that to you, only the loving and wonderful Son of God. But that truth leads to a second implication that they weren't ready for, and I've just kind of indicated it to you. If only God forgives sins, that means the Pharisees do not. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the way. The Pharisees are not the gate or the gatekeeper or the shepherd or the way. They had a really difficult time with this. They wanted people to get to God through their system. Even in the days of the church, they were hanging on to circumcision because it continued to kind of feed back to their control over the situation, their own power and importance and relevance. I mean, I think you know from the study of the Gospels, they considered Jesus' simple message of salvation through him to be a threat to their system and their clout and all that they had established. In this case, I'm not telling you to be less like the Pharisees and more like Jesus. I'm telling you to be less like the Pharisees in the name of Jesus. We don't determine who is saved or lost. No local church is the gatekeeper or the way into Christ. I would say not even the universal church is the way into a relationship with Christ. We enter into salvation through Christ when He provides it. It is through Him and His grace and his gift. We are added to a group, the body of Christ, as a result of that. And even then, we're added by God, not by any group or organization or council. So I think as Christians, especially Christians like the Pharisees who know the law pretty well, who are organized in a way that we believe honors God, need to be very careful lest we decide that we are more vital to someone's salvation than we are. And we might end up making the terribly foolish decision of denying what Jesus can do in someone's life because it doesn't match perfectly what I did or what I approve. Now, of course, the remedy for that is to take everyone to Jesus. 
Everyone needs to believe because Jesus said you must believe. Everyone needs to repent of the sins of their past because Jesus said it on like day one of his ministry. Everyone needs to be baptized as an appeal of faith to God because Jesus taught it and did it and sent his apostles out to proclaim it. Make it about him and not about us. But don't forget that he's a heart reader and he knows everything. And you and I on our best day are not good at either of those things. The second story of the chapter is sort of connected to the first. Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. Jesus goes to Matthew's house and has dinner with tax collectors and sinners. This is something the Pharisees would not do and did not do. And in fact, by the way, this reveals maybe the Pharisees' biggest problem. I just don't think they cared about people. I don't think they had compassion on the lame man or were able to share in the joy of his forgiven sins or ability to walk. I don't think they really loved the prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners of the world. And so when they saw Jesus there, and you know they'd been following him around, waiting on a mistake, they fashioned this question in verse 16. Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Man, I think I said question one had the most irony on it, but maybe I was wrong. The fact that they don't know the answer to that question kind of tells their entire story. The Pharisees missed the fact that God made all people, loves all people, sent Jesus to reach everyone, and Jesus knew that there were people around him who knew that they were broken, who knew that they were lost, and who were seeking salvation, the sick looking for a physician, and so he went to them. I feel like the Pharisees just wanted him to leave all of those people alone, come and sit in the synagogue with us, don't teach us, we're already saved, and just kind of fall in line with the things we once said. Jesus' answer is very striking. He said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's striking because the Pharisees were sinners who needed Jesus just like everyone else did, but they perceived themselves to already be righteous. And of course, this presented two problems. One is they didn't submit themselves to change in the name of Jesus, And two, they bought into this idea that they were better or more deserving than others, which is a works-based system and doomed to fail. Look, I don't want to poke the bear here or even go about defining to you exactly what the bear is, but most people know that there needs to be more loving, committed, compassion-laced evangelism among God's people. As individuals, certainly as local churches, We need to see the collection of ourselves as a hospital where the nurses and doctors are also patients, welcoming any in who want to be healed by the Lord instead of the all too common comforts of a country club. Have you ever been to an old money country club? You walk in and the walls are all dark paneled and all the chairs always look the same and the old red carpet. And what used to be a place filled with people now has five octogenarians playing poker. That's probably a terrible analogy. There's no poker played at our local churches. But the idea of everyone else coming to us, respecting who we are, changing everything to see things just like we do, and then we let them in, is exactly the way the Pharisees would have operated. In this way, for this second question, we do need to be less like them and more like Jesus. Okay, from there it goes into a third interesting section in Mark 2, where both John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they come to Jesus and they say, why are our people fasting? The Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples do not fast. 
Now, personally, I'm a big proponent of fasting for the right reasons, but generally in Jewish culture, it had to do with mourning and desperation and sorrow. And I think the Pharisees probably had that market cornered under Roman rule, waiting for some warrior to deliver them, perpetually disappointed. They missed the fact that Jesus was the one they were all waiting for and that he brought good news, great news, of a kind of deliverance and joy that surpassed anything Roman guards could touch. Jesus responds by talking about the inappropriate relationship of a new patch with an old garment or new wine and an old wineskin. He says, look, when the bridegroom is here, we feast. When the bridegroom leaves, then there will be time for fasting. What he's ultimately saying is, I have come to be the savior of the world. This is the best time in your entire history. We should be rejoicing and celebrating and spreading the news, not overrun by mourning and doubt and even disgust. So it kind of played out that way for his disciples. They feasted with him while he was alive. They mourned when he was in the grave. But once he was raised again and ascended, there was only joy and peace and passion for the rest of their lives. Boy, I bet it would have been interesting to sit down with a Pharisee and ask him what he was so upset about. His list would have been really long. The government, the state of things, the way that people aren't following their rules like they should, some false joy and simple message that Jesus is bringing that isn't going through us. While they probably believed they were going to heaven, they sure wouldn't have sounded like it. I don't know, do I even need to get to the application portion of this or can we just move on to the fourth question? I contend there is far too much negativity and sorrow, and disdain, and woe is the world, and woe is us, and all of that coming out of the mouths and the social media posts of Christians. That is not consistent with a risen Savior. It is certainly not helpful in trying to tell the world that Jesus is the tremendous answer to everything, the one who can carry you through anything and keep you filled with hope. And then we go around facing our problems as if our dog just got shot. This section isn't asking you exactly to be more like Jesus, but it is asking you to live in a way that says that you know him, that his victory means something to you. Because it can't be joy in someone else's life until they see that he is the joy of yours. Man, I feel like I'm preaching today. Is that how it's coming across? I think I'm okay with that. Let me give you one more story in Mark 2, a fourth question asked by the Pharisees. You probably know this story pretty well, but I'm going to read it for you because Mark puts it in a very short, brief fashion. The Pharisees scoped out the disciples picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were saying, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So Matthew's account adds a lot more. And usually when we preach on this, we mix it all together. But I don't want to do that today. I just want you to see that the Pharisees were so bent on accusation that they nitpicked everything until they found something they thought would stick. You can tell what their motives are, to defame these disciples and minimize them so that they can somehow retain their clout. Of course, it led them in a foolish direction, as is often the case, because I'm not in any way convinced that picking the grain heads was an actual violation of the law of Moses. 
It was a violation of the laws the Pharisees had created to wrap around the laws of Moses that they had by their own tradition made into law. But while Jesus chose to keep the law during his life, he nor his disciples was bound by God to keep laws that the Pharisees had created, no matter how traditionally accepted they were. I really find Jesus' response interesting. He could have simply said, it's not a violation of the law, it's just one of yours, and so leave us alone. But instead he said, hey, remember that time that David did break the law? And I know this is debated by preachers and stuff, but I think David did break the law. Jesus seems to be saying exactly that. And I don't think Jesus is putting into play situational ethics here, where it's okay to break the law for the sake of hunger. Keep in mind, this isn't about David or the disciples. This is actually about the heart of the Pharisees. But what he's definitely saying is, it's really interesting that you're not picking on one of your own guys that you kind of worship the ground David walks on, so you probably don't even consider what he did wrong or something worth mentioning. And yet us, your perceived enemies, you're nitpicking us to death. He said, look, the Sabbath, all of this, it was not made for man to worship it. It was made to service the needs of man. That is really deep and intriguing stuff and may overturn an apple cart or two in the way we think about things, but I'm running out of time today, so go ask one of your favorite preachers to tell you what they think about it. I know that the implications of this story are a couple of very important things. One, Mark says it very clearly. Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If Jesus approves it, it is approved. End of discussion. If it does not violate the will of Jesus, it is not a sin, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about it. But to kind of tie the whole chapter together and just peeking into Matthew's gospel, remember when he said in this same text, go find out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Ultimately, the Pharisees were about protecting themselves and whatever institution they'd put their blood, sweat, and tears in. They did not love people. They claimed to love God, but their behavior with others brought that into question. As I've preached a lot lately, the way that we show our love for God is the way that we seek unity with others and love others and show compassion and kindness and patience. The Pharisees did not champion those things. They championed their legal decisions above people and their souls. I don't know if that describes how you used to be or churches with which you are affiliated. I'm not trying to force any of those connections, but I know that I've had mindsets in the past that champion the Sabbath over the men it was designed to bless. I have championed my decisions on things over the mercy that God has abundantly showed me that he demands that I show to others. I have pushed things in preaching as the law of God that are not the explicitly stated law of God or the words of Jesus. And while, just like you, I'm still teaching the truth, reading the word, and especially directing people towards Jesus, I think in years past, my biggest fear was standing with someone that Jesus was standing against, but that has changed. My largest fear now is standing against someone that Jesus is standing with. Okay, so that chapter gives you a lot to think about. They questioned Jesus four times, and it revealed a lot more about them than it did him. And I hope you find it useful in self-examination. Here at the end, let me just mention to you early in chapter 3 where Jesus asks a question. He's in the synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand. It was the Sabbath day, of course, and he calls the man to himself, and he says to everyone, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill it? That is an awesome question. They wanted to say, no, you cannot do that here on the Sabbath. 
I don't care how it's going to help this guy. I do think it's interesting, he said, is it okay to heal or kill? Probably if the Pharisees were going to break this rule for any reason, I kind of feel like it would be more the right to kill than to heal. Maybe, maybe not, but it's interesting that he worded it that way. But of course, they could not answer his question because their answer would be heartless and miss the entire point of all the laws of God. And so they kept silent. But their silence angered Jesus, and he grieved at their hardness of heart. And then he demonstrated his glory right in front of them and healed the man's hand. This whole discourse ends in chapter 3, verse 6, with the Pharisees going out and immediately conspiring to try and destroy him. All I can tell you here at the end is that I'm not going out like that, and I hope you aren't either. We mentioned at the beginning that all salvation comes from the Lord who reads every heart. The Pharisees lacked the capacity for compassion, and so they missed the entire point of all of God's laws. Let's not live like that. Let's live like Jesus, delivering a message of healing and forgiveness, going to anyone, anywhere to share with them the joy that is filling your heart. And when you're wrestling in your conscience with how to deal with someone who does something that you don't like, should you choose anger and judgment or should you choose kindness and humility? I hope in those situations, you and I both will choose Jesus. Do me a favor, go spend some time in Mark chapters two and three and read about these interactions. Decide who you're going to be more like. Just know that those decisions may be drastic because there was a huge difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. Thank you so much for joining in today. If you enjoyed this program, consider sharing it with your family and your friends. And if you're just in search of deeper Bible study or you want to share the message of Jesus with the children in your life, remember to go to creation2revelation.com. This wonderful company run by Christians provides beautiful illustrations of scripture from beginning to end, putting the spotlight on Jesus. And remember this, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, excel still more.